you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. Yes, I know Haggai is everyone's favorite book of the Bible. You probably know exactly where it is. Uh, that's probably not true. You probably need to go to the table of contents, and that's okay. It's a small little book toward the end of the Old Testament, a minor prophet, only two chapters. Uh, in one, my main reading Bible, it's actually literally just one page, front and back. Just a tiny little book, but with a powerful message. So go to Haggai, and then let's, let's as you're going there, let's just go to the Lord and ask His grace uh, to be with us as we look at His Word. Father, I just ask for Your Spirit to come in an in a unmistakable way. Spirit, we know you are here because you have promised Jesus to be present with us by your Spirit. And we're, when we gather as your church, you are with us. And when we're sent out on your mission, you are with us. And the way you speak to us and the way you present yourself to us is through the text of the Bible. And we just want to lean into that. And so I just ask you would help us to, to hear your word and that I would be faithful to speak it and, and Holy Spirit, if, you, if there's anything that I've prepared to say that I don't need to say, that you would edit me out. And if there's something that I need to say that's not in my notes, that you would help me to say what I need to say for your people to be built up for your glory and your mission in this community on June 23rd, 2019, in the week ahead. And we ask for open hearts and open ears. In Jesus' name, amen. When you wish upon a star... I bet the song, song's already in your head. When you wish upon... Anyone know the song? Yes. What happens if you wish upon a star? Your dreams come true. That's what they told us, right? The song was written in 1939, 38 and 39, for the Disney movie Pinocchio. And has subsequently become Disney's theme song. That's like on ev everything Disney is like... Dreams come true, wish upon a star, and, and it all started uh, back in this movie Pinocchio where Geppetto is there and he's, you know, wishing upon a star. And we have been, heard this song, we've heard this song, we've been told this message, and, and sometimes we, we kind of say, okay, yeah, that's just Disney, that's fluff and puff, you know, it's like, it's kind of fun, kids like it, but we're like, nobody really thinks, like, nobody really believes that, like, if you go wish upon a star that your dreams will come true. Except, we do believe that. We do believe that. We, we, this, this, this has permeated our heart and our mind, and we believe that we are given a responsibility and we're given a right to pursue our dreams. And we believe that we are owed our dreams in many ways. There was a poet named Langston Hughes in Harlem in the... In the middle of the 20th century, and he wrote his poem called Dreams. He said, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. We've kind of bought into this idea that, that what is life without dreams? What, what, if, if you don't have a dream, what, why are you even here? What are you doing? Everybody has dreams, and everyone has a right to pursue their dreams. But what happens when those dreams don't come true? Langston Hughes has another poem called A Dream Deferred. And he asks this question with the first line of that poem. He says, 
what happens to a dream deferred? Kids, you have a spot in your program for new words. Maybe you don't know what that word means. It means, what do you do when you're, you have to wait for your dream? When your dream hasn't come true? Or, on the other hand, what do you do when you've got everything you've been dreaming about? When you've got all that you thought you wanted and you're still not happy? What do you do when your dreams fail you? What do you do when your dream fails you? What do you do when you either aren't getting what you wanted out of life or you did get what you wanted out of life and it's not enough? What do you do? We're going to answer that question from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to look at this passage in four parts. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the backstory. We're going to kind of get some context for this book and, and where, where this book came from, why this book is in the Bible, and kind of the, the backstory, the VH1 behind the music for this particular book of the Bible. And then we're going to look at this passage in three, three sections. So first, the backstory. Um, j- just, you know, sometimes the Bible's a big book, right? The Bible's a big book. And kids, how many books are in the Bible? 66 books in the Bible. How many in the Old Testament? Yes, 39, exactly. Uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It's a big book. There's a lot in here. And sometimes it's intimidating. But when you really get down to it, the storyline is really not all that complicated. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, the story starts with God creates the world. He creates people in the world. He creates the world perfect. He creates people to have fellowship and relationship with Him. But then in Genesis 3, people rebel against God. They turn away from God, and they, they say they don't want God to be the king of their life. They want to be the, the, the rulers of their own life. And this, this rebellion, this is called sin, and it separates people and God from one another. But because God loves people, he wants people to have a relationship with him. So he chooses a man, a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham, who becomes the funnel of all of God's blessings for the world. And he promises to make Abraham a great nation and for all of the nations to be blessed through Abraham. Abraham has a family. He has a son, and then he has grandkids and great-grandkids, till before you know it, there are millions of people who came from Abraham. 500 years later, though, Abraham's family, named, called the, they, they're so big now, they're called a nation. And their nation is called Israel, and they've been enslaved in the world superpower of the time, Egypt. And they've been there for hundreds of years in slavery. God calls a man named Moses, and Moses has this encounter where he sees this bush that's on fire, and God speaks out of the bush and tells him his name, I am who I am, and he says, Moses, I want you to bring my people out of Egypt into the land that I've promised to give to them, and he does that, and he leads people, the people out of Egypt, and the people eventually take the land, and they establish the kingdom. 500 years after Moses, there's a, another great man of Israel, and his name is David, the great king, David, the one who was a little boy who took a slingshot and, and struck down Goliath, the giant. And, and David has a dream. David's dream is to build God a temple. But God says, no, 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 that's not your destiny. That's going to be for your son, Solomon. And so Solomon, Solomon gets to build the temple. And Solomon builds this grand temple that's just as, as fancy and as ornate as you could imagine in the ancient world. And he builds this temple for the Lord, Yahweh, the the king of Israel, the God of Israel. David asks his son at the end of his life, says, my dream hasn't happened yet. I want you to do it. So you look look here at uh, this passage from Chronicles, 
Um, David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous. Do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until all the work of the service of the Lord's house is finished. So David says, Solomon, my dream never came true, but I want you to do it. I want it to be your, my legacy to live on in you and for you to build the temple for God. And, and Solomon does. And it's this grand temple that's there for hundreds of years. Until hundreds of years later, the people of Israel have wandered away from God and they've disobeyed God and they've rebelled against God. And so God disciplines them. And he, he, deep, he actually raises up a pagan foreign nation called Babylon to, to remove them from the land and to deport them from a, to a land that's not their home. And, and eventually, this nation, Babylon, actually destroys Solomon's wonderful temple, Solomon's beautiful temple. And the people of God are, are said to be in, in exile, and they're, they're lost, and their dreams have seemed to die, and we see the prophet Jeremiah says that this is going to be a while. Look at Jeremiah 25, 11. The whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Another verse in Jeremiah a little bit later on. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. You see Jeremiah 29.10, the next verse is the one we all like have on our coffee mug, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans for a hope and a future. That's promising the rebuilding of, and, of the temple and restoration of Israel. Now, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. The book of Haggai occurs in 520 B.C. That's 66 years later. So what's happening is there are only four years left for the temple to be restored. And things have halted. Things the, the, the people had started to build, and then they had stopped building. Look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 24 through the beginning of chapter 5. The construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill. So they'd had the opportunity to rebuild. They had started to rebuild, and then they'd lost heart. This is where God raises up the prophet Haggai. Haggai is called by God to stir the people up to rebuild the temple. And last week, and, and if you weren't here uh, on our podcast or on our website, you can listen to the, the message. And God raises up Haggai to call the people to rebuild the temple because what God is calling the people to is not just rebuilding a building, but wholehearted worship. And for them, a temple meant the ability to worship God wholeheartedly according to God's command. And the people, they, they listen and they jump in full force. They go all in. They're like, yes, we're all about this. We will rebuild the house of God. We will rebuild the temple. But now we see in chapter 1, verse 2, Haggai chapter, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1, that it's about three weeks later and they have lost heart. It's three weeks later, excuse me, it's two months later after they started rebuilding the temple. Three weeks after Haggai had spoken to them, they, they start building and now it's, it's been just a few weeks and they have lost heart and they have given up. And the reason they had given up is because they started this rebuilding project and it was clear that this temple was going to be nothing like Solomon's temple. There were some people who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple before it had been destroyed. And they're like, this is nothing like Solomon's temple. 
They'd heard stories of how great Solomon's temple was and how amazing and beautiful it was. And they're looking at what they're building, and it looks like nothing. And they're discouraged. Their dream was not coming true. The dream that, that God was going to use them for something majestic and glorious in their generation was seemingly falling apart. They'd gone all, they'd pushed their chips in the middle of the table on this rebuilding project, and it looks like they'd been dealt a bad hand. And this happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? We, we get married and we think it's going to be happily ever after. Health problems, death, divorce. We dream that our family's going to be this model of perfection, and then, you know, our kids kind of do their own thing and they rebel. We dream that our career is going to satisfy us and we get laid off or we get promoted and we get to the top of the ladder and we're still not happy. What do we do when our dreams don't come true or when they do come true and they're not enough? Years ago, Brad Pitt was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine and he said, the emphasis now is on personal gain and success he smiles and says i'm sitting in it i'm telling you that's not it i'm telling you once you've got everything then you're left with just yourself i've said it before and i'll say it again it doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it what do we do when either we don't get what we've been hoping for and our dreams don't come true or when they do come true and they're not enough. Well, the first thing we have to do, we see in Haggai chapter 2, is to be honest about our situation. Be honest about your situation. Haggai 2, verses 1 through 3. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing by comparison? So he's calling them out and he's saying, you saw the former glory of the temple that Solomon had built, and now you're seeing what you're doing, and it looks, the comparison is, is the only way to say is that what you're doing is absolutely worthless. It is nothing in your eyes. Now the date here is significant. You notice there it says, uh, go back to the text, 21st day of the seventh month. Now the seventh month was a month when there were supposed to be a grand festival in Israel. And it was supposed to run from the 15th day of the month to the 21st day of the month, a seven-day festival where all they did was celebrate. Every man in the land was supposed to come to Jerusalem, and they were supposed to do nothing but worship the Lord and praise God. It was called the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles. And what it was supposed to do is remember when the people had been in the wilderness after they'd been led out of Egypt, and they'd had to live in tents and in temporary shelters. And so at the end of this festival, everyone's there. No one's done any work for seven days. They're looking at this pathetic building project they've started, and they're like, what's the point? What's not, why even start back up again? And into this, Haggai comes in, and he speaks the word of the Lord, or rather, the word of the Lord comes to Haggai because God loved them too much to let them stay in that place of discouragement. 
Notice the people here are called a remnant. A remnant. It's a very important word in the Bible. A remnant is a, is a group that's left when the dust settles. It is that which has survived a previous elimination or catastrophe. So this isn't the great throng of millions of people who had exited the land of Egypt. This isn't the millions of people who had inhabited the land for centuries and the height of Israel's glory and power. This was just a few thousand people who felt insignificant and discouraged. And they're asking and they're looking up at the Temple Mount and they're seeing this pathetic half-built thing and they're saying this is the great fulfillment of God's promise to us. They were disappointed. They were so discouraged. And what Haggai does is he calls them to recognize that truth about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. You know, recovery movements like an Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12-step uh, model, the first thing is to admit that there's a problem that's out of your control. That you can't get better. You can't fix anything you won't admit is broken. The first step is to be honest about your situation. Now, this applies to your life and your family, but I also want to talk about it in the life of our church as a brand new church here in South Florida that is only about nine months old. So let's just be totally honest and realistic about where we are. So I, I have a, a chart here of our average attendance from September to June. And you see it kind of goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. You know, it's just kind of hovering there between 70 and 45, 47, 50. Um, if you add it all together, I did all the math this week, our average Sunday attendance from uh, September to June has been 51 people. 51 people. Now, I'm not discouraged by that number. It's, it's, you know, maybe not as big as we had hoped for in the beginning, but it is what it is. That's the number of people. We have to just, instead of pretending like it's better than it is or pulling our hair out that it's worse than it is, it just is what it is. This is the number. It's 51. You know, and just to just... That's average attendance for the course of the year. Sometimes less, sometimes more. It is what it is. Now, here's, here's what we need to realize, is that th there's, there's nothing wrong with being at that place. The problem would be is if we either think, well, that doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's insignificant. It's not worth being a part of that. Or, why well, I like it. I, don't want, I want it to stay like this. I like it being really small and kind of intimate. I think that God wants us, he doesn't want us to necessarily be a big church or a small church or a medium-sized church. What he wants us to do is he wants us to reach people with the gospel in this community and we'll leave the results to him. Now, I have an encouraging second chart for you, uh, and that is it's our church's growth compared to two growing new churches in South Florida. These are both churches that have been planted by friends of mine in South Florida, and they both, after year one, so this is church one, church two, were in not that different of a spot than we are. So this is our church here. So we're, you know, just pretty, pretty close to the same, maybe a little less, a little more. And look, they have, they have had a trajectory of growth over the next few years. Now, the thing is, that doesn't just happen magically. That doesn't just happen automatically. They have had to invest in the mission that God has given them in their community. And so we have to be honest about where we are and be honest about what God is calling us to. And, and, and so as, as we're here, we are at a place, I think, where we have an, a foundation as a church where we could really be poised to make an impact for the kingdom 
in our community. But it's going to take intentionality and consistency. It's going to take showing up faithfully and being here to be a part of the body and taking, you saw, some of you, I know, I mentioned those door hangers and you're like, ah, that's great. I have no intention of ever doing that. And this is cool. I understand. Like, let's just be honest about the situation. That's what you were thinking. And that's okay to think that, but it's not okay to actually do that. No, you, you've got to be intentional on mission. Now, if you don't do the door hangers, it's not like you're not going to go to heaven or something like that. But the point is this point is this. We're not just here for ourselves. We're here ultimately for the glory of God, and we're here for people in this community who need the message of the gospel. And so as, as we're here in this church, and I know some of you, you've been in from the ground floor, and you have seen this, you know, there were times when we were in our core group phase. We had our first little Sunday house church worship, and Gary and Miriam can tell you, there were three people there. There were three, now there were kids outside and whatever. You know, you should have seen there were ups and downs all along the way over the last season of life. God has been faithful to us all along the way. And we are here because God has a mission for us. And let's just be honest, this is where we are. And let's start from there. And then here's the next thing that Haggai tells, Haggai, not Haggai, Haggai tells, I used to say Haggai when I was a kid before I studied it and learned how to actually say it. So it's actually Haggai, not Haggai, but you know, whatever. Be encouraged, number two, or number three, excuse me, because God is with you. Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you, the declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. Three times Haggai is, the Lord says through Haggai, be strong, be strong, be strong. Why? Because the people were feeling weak. Joshua, be strong. Zerubbabel, be strong. People, be strong. Maybe your marriage is, is struggling. Be strong. Don't give up. Maybe your kids are struggling. Be strong. Don't give up. Maybe your career is sputtering. Be strong. Don't give up. Maybe your church isn't going as well as you were hoping when you signed on. Be strong. Don't give up. Work and serve. Keep plowing. Keep grinding. Keep serving. Soon after Haggai, God raised up a second prophet, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was called, and he, he has a book of the Bible too, right after Haggai, a longer book, 14 chapters, with lots of cool stuff in there, if you ever read the book, lots of prophecies about the Messiah. But one of the things he, he says is a really powerful part in chapter 4. Look at Zechariah 4, verses 9 and 10. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you, for who despises the day of small things? Who despises the day of small things? Our culture loves big. Big, big, big. And, and we are tempted to despise the small. But God's economy works different. God's vision of things is different. 
The way God designed things is that tiny acorns become mighty oaks. Tiny seeds grow into something amazing. Don't despise the season you're in, whatever that is for you. In your life, your family, your career, your marriage. Don't despise the season you're in. God is at work. Don't despise the season we're in as a church. Don't, 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 don't give up. Don't get, don't get discouraged. Why can you be strong? Why could they be strong during that day of small things? Look what he says in verse 4. Because I am with you. I am with you. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the covenant he made with the people in Moses' time a thousand years before. But yet he could say, that's a promise I made to you. Haggai, Remnant, Zerubbabel, Joshua. I made that promise not just to Moses and them. I made that promise to you. Christian, do you realize every promise of God in the Bible is yours if you are in Christ? That it wasn't just for people then. It is for you now. I am with you. He is especially present with us when we follow him on his mission. There are multiple great commissions in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us as we pursue his mission. Look at John 20, 21 and 22. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Third one, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's the point. If you want to live a Spirit-filled life, then you need to be about the mission of God. He is present for the sake of His mission. God the Father sent God the Son to become a human man in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, was buried and raised from the dead so that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him will be forgiven and given eternal life. And then what God does when someone is saved, God gives them a mission in the world. And that mission is to tell other people about the message they themselves have heard. He's sending us. And this is the purpose. Whatever you think about the purpose of your life, your purpose in life is to glorify God and pursue Jesus on his mission. Your purpose is to make disciples. Your purpose is to be a disciple and to make disciples. No matter how small or insignificant you feel like your life may be, no matter how poorly things you, feel, thing, you feel like things are going for you right now, no matter if your dreams have died or if your dreams have left you unfulfilled, you have a purpose that matters for eternity. So don't be afraid. Be strong. And don't despise the day of small things. 
So in, in August of 2017, I had been wrestling for 15 years with the idea of planting a church, off and on for 15 years. I'd been a, at that time a pastor for almost eight years here in South Florida, and I just couldn't shake this idea that maybe God wanted us to plant a church in this part of South Florida. And so I finally took a day, and I, I just went before the Lord, prayer and fasting, just seeking God, and I, I just couldn't get any peace. I couldn't get any clarity. And then I got to Romans 10. It says, how will they hear without a preacher? And God, just in that moment, he said, okay, it's time. So I went home that night, and I told my wife, I said, hey, you know how we've been talking about doing this? Well, I think we're actually going to do it. She said, all right, I'm all in. Let's do it. So we had a core group of five people. Me, Laura, Adeline, Judson, and Olivia. That was our core group. That was our, that was our church plant launch team in August of 2017. Started meeting with everyone I could, pastors of churches who might support us, potential partners for the launch team and core team, and, and started just having conversations and praying like crazy. We had an interest meeting in November. Some, some folks signed up then who are still here today. And then in December, we, we had to, you know, we were supposed to go full-time with the church January 1st, 2018. And so we had a nine-month uh, phase of ramp-up until we launched in September of last year. And in J December 5th, I opened a church bank account. And I went to Bank United in, on Federal Highway here in Lighthouse Point. And I sat there at the desk and, and filled out all the paperwork and got everything ready, got our, you know, our, our I federal ID number and all that stuff. And so we get to the end, and she says, okay, well, how much will your opening deposit be? And I thought, oh, no, you have to have money to put in a bank account, to open that bank account. I just, I had completely forgotten about the fact that I needed money, not just paperwork. And I didn't have any money. The church had no money. All that we had invested now, at that point, had just been out of our own pocket because the church wasn't even a thing yet. And so I went to, Laura was in the car with our kids. And I went and I said, do you have any cash? And she said, yeah, I have $100 that I got as a birthday gift. I said, would you want to donate that to Cross United Church? And she said, not really, but I will. And so I took and opened our church checking account with $100 of my wife's money 25 days before we were supposed to be full-time. And then God has been faithful. And, and, and by the end of December of that year, we had about $6,000 in our church checking account. And, up to, and to this point... God has provided every penny we've needed. We've never missed a paycheck. We've never been able to not pay our bills. We've had everything we have needed from the beginning, all from that day of small things. Be honest about the situation. Be encouraged because God is with you. And finally, realize that the final promise is yet ahead. That's the last thing. Believe that the best is yet to come. Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For the Lord of armies says this, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first says the Lord of armies, I will provide peace in this place. 
This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. He says, you think this is small and insignificant? You have no idea what I can do. You have no idea what I can do with your meager efforts to build something. It's not about the glory of Solomon and his wealth. It is about the glory of God and his power. In 1959, there was a song written that was recorded by Frank Sinatra in 1964 called The Best is Yet to Come. And uh, it's become sort of a mantra for a certain kind of genre of uh, theology and preaching that says that God will give you the best in this life. And that may be health and wealth. It may just be fulfillment and your dreams coming true. And what, what those theological teachings are doing is they are cashing in on a promise that is not yet ours to claim. Because the best is yet to come, but the best is yet to come in the final, eternal, glorious kingdom of God. And in this life, we may have suffering. You know what Jesus got in this life? Jesus got a cross. You know what Paul got in this life? He got his head chopped off. You know what many Christians in this life got? They got martyrdom. They got prison, all for the sake of the gospel. In this life, we may have suffering, but we have a greater glory that is yet ahead. Your life may seem like a day of small things. You may have wanted big things for your life. You may have wanted great things for your marriage and your family. You may have wanted great success in your career. And you may have gotten it and you may not have gotten it. But that is not the final calculus in the kingdom of God. We serve a God who grows mighty oaks from tiny acorns. And your life may be a seed in the ground that far outlasts you. God will accomplish his purpose and he will keep his promise. You can take that to the bank. Your marriage might be difficult, but you know what? On that day, you will be a member of the eternal bride of Christ. Your kids may be rebellious and they may be having a difficult time, but you know what? You will be forever a child of the Father. Your career might be floundering, but your main mission in life is to... Join Jesus on his mission to make disciples and build his church in the world, and that mission will succeed, period. He says, I will shake the nations. I will fill this house with glory. I will provide peace. This is about the glory of God and God's power. And when that, that's, that is the, the, the X factor that can't be calculated. So what do you do when your dreams die? Your dreams don't come true, or when they do come true and they're not enough, you look to the future that God is promising for all of his children. You look to a bloody cross. You look to an empty tomb and to an eternal weight of glory that will dissolve any momentary or light affliction in this life. As a church, I envision God doing great things. I just, I do. You know, there's a reason we're given, we're all in on this thing. is because I believe God has a purpose for us in this generation, in this moment, in this community. I believe that, and I envision that, that this church is going to make a dent, that we're going to reach people with the gospel, and people are going to be baptized, and there's going to be old people and young people and rich people and poor people and black people and white people and brown people and liberal people and conservative people, and they're going to all be together in this thing that God is doing called the church. And I, I envision that, that some, God is doing something from this small beginning. 
And I know that God has amazing things because the church of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will last on this earth that will last forever. And every penny you invest, every drop of sweat you pour as sweat equity into this church, every minute you invest of serving, it's going to multiply far beyond anything that you can ask or imagine. Because it's Jesus' church and God's promise is to build it. You know, the people, they did build the temple. It took four years, but they built it. And it was finished almost exactly 70 years after it had been destroyed. God's promise came true. It didn't look much, look like much. It wasn't as great as Solomon's temple. And then 500 years later, there was a man named Herod. And Herod, Herod was an ambitious guy. You might have heard about him. There's a couple of different Herods, his sons in the New Testament. And Herod, Herod wanted to leave a legacy. And so what Herod did is he deployed the wealth of the Roman Empire in his position as the king of Palestine to build a temple that was far greater than Solomon's temple ever was. It took 50 years to build this thing. It had just been completed at the time of Jesus' ministry. And people were in awe. I don't, know if you've ever, I don't know if you've driven down 595 lately and seen the hard rock, the guitar, that's like 400 feet tall in the air, and it's like, oh my goodness, this monstrosity that you can see for miles. This was something like, except in a good way, what Herod had built. Look at what, look at what the disciples say. They were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. Look at this next verse. He was... One of the disciples said, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Part of this temple still stands today. It was an amazing architectural wonder. This is what Jesus says. These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Forty years later, that prophecy came true. The Roman emperor Titus came in and what you see left on the Temple Mount today is what was left then. He destroyed it because God wasn't ultimately building a physical structure. He was building a spiritual people. This is the promise of Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven plagues came and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need sun or moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will be never, never be night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Church, this is your destiny. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
Will you speak to us now through these words that we've heard to be reminded to not despise the day of small things, whatever that may mean in our life, that where our dreams may fail or not satisfy us like we thought, that we can look to you because your dreams, your plans, your purposes will never fail. And we trust you and we believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.